From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The final week in the shortest month of the year featured the fullest slate of action yet in this COVID-altered athletic season, with everything from baseball to swimming to golf and much more. On today's show, we'll fire up the roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss a solid rebound for men's basketball, early takeaways from spring football, and a tough opening weekend for baseball. Then, basketball's resident big man Colin Castleton joins us to discuss going from the Sunshine State to Michigan, what brought him back home, the challenges of being 6'11", and more. But first, men's basketball has endured a very bizarre season on a number of levels, so just being able to play has been a relief when the opportunity has presented itself. While they came out rusty following their return to the court last week, they righted the ship with back-to-back wins over Georgia and Auburn, which is where we opened our roundtable with Chris and Scott. Given the COVID pause and everything, Florida had not won a game. I think the date was January 30th at West Virginia. Uh, Four days later, they lost that uh, bad loss at home to South Carolina. South Carolina played them at the end of the game. Then uh, COVID hit, they lost a game against, excuse me, lost, uh, had a game postponed at LSU, had a game postponed at Tennessee, had a home game postponed against Texas A&M. So their first game, uh, once they got back to play Georgia uh, last weekend, that was a win. Uh, it wasn't a great win. Georgia's not a great basketball team right now. They, had a really, they have a really good point guard, obviously, uh, in Sahir Wheeler, um, who had a big game that day. Um, Florida did not handle Georgia's pressure. Uh, late in the game, and what was a 15-point lead kind of shrank, I think, to six or I believe five with uh, inside of a minute. Um, they were able to hit some free throws to finish that game off. So turnovers are an issue. They had 20 in that game. So they go to Auburn, and just going into the game, Adam, I, 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 w- I was doing some other stuff, and, and I was telling people that I thought everything that Auburn did well was stuff that Florida did, did not do well. And I thought it was a dangerous, dangerous game, mostly and almost uh, uh, exclusively based on Sharif Cooper playing for Auburn, who um, was the number one ball dominant uh, point guard in the country. His, his usage possession was number, I think, four in the country. His assists uh, per basket while he's on the floor was number one in the country. This is a really, really good college basketball player who's probably going to be an NBA lottery pick, at least a first-round draft pick. Gators show up. They go out for warm-ups. Turns out uh, he, he rolled his ankle Sunday in practice. Auburn kind of kept it under wraps uh, like most coaches probably would have. And it was, it was just a huge difference uh, within, I want to say, five minutes in the game, uh, uh, six minutes into the game, Auburn had uh, eight turnovers. They just weren't ready to play without him like that. And Florida did what should have done in a game like that. Uh, they were up by 22 at halftime. Uh, Auburn managed to get it to 15. Twitter was obviously getting antsy. Uh, but they end up winning the game 74-57. They built that lead back out to 24 it got a little sloppy, of course, at the end. There was about a, I'd say, a three- or four-minute stretch where Auburn put all their eggs in a full-court uh, press basket. 
Florida had some turnovers, let him get back in the game a little bit. But after a timeout by Mike, Mike White handled it a little bit better, hit a couple shots, kind of calmed down a little bit. But my takeaways from the Auburn game specifically, Trey Mann had one of his most aggressive games of the season. I've said all season that I think that uh, he needed to be more aggressive. He, everything looks so easy to him. He's so smooth. He can get his own shot anytime. He's not lightning fast. He just He's crafty and savvy as far as being able to uh, go get his own. Um, the other thing is Scotty Lewis uh, just back into the fray in a big way at 14 points in the first half. Um, this is a guy who the last, I believe, uh, uh, five SEC games had combined for 13 points. Inability to stay out of foul trouble. He had four fouls last night, by the way, but I think still ended up playing uh, 25 minutes, I believe. But he was a factor in the game. Mike White said afterwards it may have been his best game of the season. Now, he said that after the Georgia game, one of Scotty's best uh, SEC games. And Scotty was one for six with four turners in the game, but he had energy on the defensive end and didn't let things uh, kind of distract him when they weren't going his way. So if you can get a more aggressive Trey man and a more engaged and more uh, early season Scotty Lewis uh, heading into these uh, last few regular season games, that'll give the Gators to be uh, put themselves in a position to be the best version of themselves. Colin Castleton was okay uh, in the game. I think he only had seven points, but he, I think he had eight rebounds. Uh, I, I go back to Trey Mann. I, I, I'd be remiss to mention, Adam, he had 13 rebounds in the game. He was the first guard since in the 2000s to have at least uh, 19 points and 13 rebounds in game, joining Nick Kalathis on that front. So uh, if he's rebounding down like that, that's really going to help that front court. It's really going to help also. He gets the ball. You're not looking for someone to get the ball. He can get the ball and go and, and maybe start some transition opportunities for Florida. So a lot of things went well for them. It wasn't a perfect game, and obviously the circumstances were far from perfect for Auburn. But, you know, if you're playing a team like that with a really good player who's not in the game, maybe you're supposed to go on the road and win by 17. Florida did that. Hmm. Well, now they're in a position, Chris, as you noted, where there's there's only two games left in the regular season, assuming they, they both go forward and don't have any COVID issues. Um, and there are two tough games. You go to Kentucky, who is now playing pretty well, as opposed to when Florida saw them. They were a bad version of Kentucky. They still came in the O-Dome and wreaked havoc. Uh, and then wrapping up against Missouri, who's been you know top 25 most of the year, albeit they seem to have these weird lapses where they lose inexplicable games. But those are arguably two of the better teams the SEC Florida has to contend with here in the final week. Yeah, well, Kentucky's playing as well as any team in the SEC for the last week and a half. There'll be a well-rested Kentucky team because they had a, their midweek game uh, was supposed to be uh, at Texas A&M, and, and that got postponed because of uh, COVID also. So, again, they've, they've won three straight games. They put a throttling on Tennessee, the likes of which kind of like what Florida did to them early in the season. That game was at Knoxville also. So uh, they're what they are every year. Of course, they're talented. They got a bunch of uh, uh, you know, high school Americans on the team. And Isaiah Jackson, their, uh, their 6'11 big, is now just rocketing up the uh, NBA charts. He's a guy who probably hasn't played. Certainly early season didn't play as much as certainly the fans of Kentucky were wanting him to. I think he leads the league in block shots. He's, he's just this one of those guys. I remember Mike Fratello used to call him live athletic bodies. He's just really long, really bouncy, uh, uh, and he's, he's just a factor all around the rim. You know, Colin Castles is going to have his hands full with that game. But uh, you mentioned they're two tough games to end with, but they're also two really good opportunities. I'd say right now Florida is around a eight or a nine seed if the NCAA tournament uh, field was to roll out right now. 
Well, both these games are, are, are have potential to be quad one or quad, quad one opportunities for Florida to uh, enhance that resume. And once you get into March, and we're close to March, I would say even if this, this game coming up, when you get this late in the season and you're, a, uh, you're like a, a 10 seed or a 9, every win you get, you conceivably you can punch yourself up another line. So let's say Florida can go to Lexington and win. And I might add, I believe they've won there. If it's not nine, it's only 10 times in the history of the program. Mm. Uh, if, they, if they're able to do that, you know, maybe that, that eight seed becomes a seven. Uh, if you can protect the home court against Missouri, and um, you know, maybe that's another line you can jump or at least get close to it. You mentioned there's two regular season games left. There's probably going to be at least three because the SEC left that last uh, weekend of the regular season open to reschedule while Florida lost games against 10 uh, road game against Tennessee road game against LSU home game is Texas A&M. The SEC is not married to putting you to one of those games. They're going to try to find games where they can get you to and make, and maybe get a teams that's available. As long as you haven't played that team twice, they're going to roll. You, they're they're going to try to find games and it could be something crazy could even happen. I believe they're even considering maybe a Wednesday's games next week, will be moved to Tuesday and maybe they're going to try to jam a, uh, a Friday, Saturday, Friday, Sunday games in to maybe mm. get two games in. That's just something that the league is toying with right now, because with Auburn out of the NC, out of the SEC tournament, that's a, it kind of makes things a little uh, lighter in terms of the scheduling as far as the SEC tournament, the following week in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, like everything during COVID still a lot of moving parts for sure. And uh, we would encourage fans to stay locked into FloridaGators.com and follow Chris as well at Gators Chris for the latest updates on what that schedule uh, does end up looking like should there be some changes to it. Um, I want to turn attention now to football. And believe it or not, it's it's spring football time, a little bit earlier than usual, Scott. Um, but we're glad to have football back. We're glad to have you back as well. Um, can you tell us just a little bit of uh, the storylines that have emerged so far from spring practice for the Gators? Well, Adam, any time that you lose a quarterback like Kyle Trask after the season he had, and you're, you know you're going to have to rely on uh, new guys in 2021, uh, Emory Jones is certainly kind of the, the headliner of this camp. Uh, it's his opportunity, really his first opportunity as Florida's projected starting quarterback to, to kind of lead the offense and, uh, and build around what he's done as a couple of years uh, as a backup. And uh, you know, if you listen to his teammates talk, uh, they really love this guy's arm. I mean, he's always had the arm. He's got the athletic ability. Now he's getting the opportunity. I think uh, they're seeing some of, you know, some of that out at camp. You're, you're hearing some good reports from uh, what Emory Jones is doing. Obviously, Anthony Richardson is kind of at this point number two there getting a look. They also have Jalen Kitna in uh, a true freshman who's an early enrollee. So, you know, it's a new look at quarterback, yet the, the, the top guy is a guy Gator fans have seen glimpses of. They're going to see a lot more of him in 2021, and uh, I think that storyline is, is the predominant one, and we've certainly had the quarterback storyline a lot uh, <laughs> over the last <laughs> few years, but it kind of – it kind of trended in a very positive way, you know, after Dan Mullen got here, resurrecting kind of Felipe Franks' career. And obviously uh, what happened with, you know, Franks getting hurt and eventually transferring, and then just the emergence of Kyle Trask into really a record-setting 
2020 season. So there's optimism that now it's Emory Jones's turn to to kind of work uh, under Mullen and get some of that magic and see what he can do uh, leading this offense. One of the other things about spring that is always compelling is tracking the early enrollees, the new guys that are already here. What are we seeing from this crop of, I believe, 12 early enrollees? Uh, who's standing out? Who's making an impression? They really like Jason Marshall, the uh, defensive back from Miami Palmetto. Uh, I remember when he signed on the National Signing Day, I saw a picture of him at his school, you know, signing the papers. And you look at the guy and right away, he looks like he's, 22 not 18 i mean he's he's really built uh he's a guy that i think you're gonna hear about as a true freshman i mean he and it's a position of need obviously they're losing uh, a lot of players back in the secondary uh they had a rough year back there in 2020 so jason marshall is one guy a very physical player but also a playmaker uh more of a cornerback but i think he can switch around some spots back there if needed uh, so he's one guy that certainly uh, has been mentioned some. And, you know, a couple of transfers, Adam, that Mullins already mentioned are the, the defensive linemen. One of them is Antonio Shelton, the, the transfer from Penn State, and then Daquan Newkirk from Auburn. And both of those guys have come in and kind of taken on a, an early leadership role, which that's hard to do. We saw it a couple of years ago with Jonathan Grenard. Uh, you know, he, he came in from Louisville as a grad transfer. You know, he's only got a year in the program, although Newkirk actually has more. He can have more than a year. Shelton's a, a graduate transfer. But that's hard to do to come in and establish your presence in the locker room and on the field. And, and Mullen talked about how both of these guys have sort of done that so far. And, uh, you add those guys with Zachary Carter, and uh, that's a, a nice little – group up there. Uh, Muhammad Diabate is another guy who we, we saw him flash some late last season, uh, but everything points to him being a team leader. Uh, I remember in the SEC uh, championship game against Alabama afterward, he was pretty impressive just talking about, you know, the vision of what he sees for himself and this team going forward. And you knew right away this guy had just a, a good pulse of the team. You, you could tell the coaches – are relying on him some. So you're just seeing a transformation that happens this time of year, Adam. Another guy that uh, has turned some heads on, on social media. Again, because fans can't be out there, uh, there is some sense of, or are, are we talking about Bigfoot? Are, you know, are these things people can see? Is this <laughs> is this real? Uh, and, and that's been some of the reaction to uh, one of Florida's new gigantic players. Can you tell us about the urban legend of the 6'5", 432 pound lineman well i think dan mullen he's he's already got his nickname big dez that's, <laughs> that's what they call him and you're right adam six five four thirty two that is that's official on the roster uh he came in obviously from a uh, armwood high down in plant city near tampa uh, the guy knows a good meal when he sees one obviously so <laughs> we uh, we are in the same category there so I, I think i think a good story might just be going to going out to eat with them i think that two be a of you guys story. together yeah 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 just go out and hang out but i mean it's a little bit reminiscent of a couple of years ago when evan white the offensive lineman came in uh from the tampa bay area as well i think he was 390 when he got here and i'm I remember going down and talking to him for the first time when he first got here 
and you just saw a lot of baby fat. And now if you look at him, he's lost about, I think he's still 330, but he's lost 60 pounds and it's a lot of man muscle now. So I'm expecting uh, Desmond Watson to be losing some weight here, but his natural physique, I mean, he's going to carry 375, 385 when he's in shape. So Mm -hmm. that is what you call a roadblock in the middle of the defensive line. Uh, We've seen him over and over at Alabama under Nick Saban, guys who can move at that size. So Florida hopes they have one and big Des. And again, I'm going to try to get with him and, I don't know, maybe go to Waffle House or something, see how much he can put down. <laughs> I think that the quote of the week came from Mullen. Uh, he said that he needs to, quote, lose a 12-year-old was his description of the amount of weight that he needs to shed. Uh, definitely a project. We'll see how that how that continues to develop. Um, another ongoing project developing right now on the southwest side of campus is Gator Baseball. We had Kevin O'Sullivan on last week to talk about the unanimous number one Gator baseball team. Uh, I think everyone expected them to come right out and just steamroll Miami and probably win every game the season because that's the kind of hype that, that can get built sometimes in the offseason. And then, Scott, it, it obviously did not go according to plan. Uh, not only did they not sweep Miami, they dropped the series. And so you know adversity is going to come when you're the number one team and everybody's coming after you. I don't know if people expect it to be week one in the new ballpark, but alas, that is what happened. Yeah, I mean, Miami, they came in and, you know, Miami is going to be good. It's an intense rivalry. Uh, but Florida, they heard, I mean, you got to give Miami credit. I mean, they did what they had to do to come back, uh, especially in that second game after Florida took the first game. But uh, you, all you got to do is look at the through four games, what the Gators have done. They're two and two. And you look at their stats, it's pretty simple. Why? 40 innings pitch, 28 walks. Mm. And it, it killed them in really both losses in the Miami series. Uh, that's one thing that, you know, Sully even said that they're hitting the ball really well. Defense has been good. Don't really have an answer for the walks because I did not expect that. So guys are a little rusty. Uh, a lot of young pitchers were getting, you know, first taste of it under the lights, as they like to say. Also, you know, you had the in the backdrop, you had the big weekend with the opening of the new stadium. And there was a lot of buzz about being number one, about the Miami-Florida rivalry. Is it, you know, is this the year the Canes and Gators uh, maybe go back out to Omaha together? So you you had a lot uh, around the series, and the Gators didn't play their best in the series. And it was mostly on the mound. I mean, what obviously caught most fans' attention was the meltdown by uh, the reliever, the closer, Franco Alamon, in the second game. They had a what a three-run lead there, and he walked five and hit a batter in the ninth, and Miami tied it up and then won in 13 innings. And then it carried over to Sunday where Miami scored eight before Florida started chipping away and closed it to eight to six, but wasn't enough. So the Gators go over to uh, North Florida a couple of days later, even the record. Now they'll be back home uh, later this week and, and try to get a few more wins in front of the home fans. But it wasn't the greatest start, but again, it, it's baseball. Whenever I Whenever we talk about baseball on the show, Adam, you know, I know a lot of fans want to look at it as as football and even basketball to some degree, but you just can't do it. I mean, it's there's still, what, 52 games left, I think. Yeah, there's no doubt that if these guys stay healthy, they have the deepest pitching staff in the country. They have a lot of guys on this staff who are going to get drafted, who are going to go on to play pro ball. 
It's just they're walking too many people right now. So it was a disappointment from that aspect. But on the flip side, I think it was a great weekend, even though the weather kind of hampered the opener where they it, it took them a little while longer to start the game than they had hoped. The ballpark just came off beautiful on TV. Uh, the fans loved it who were there. It was unfortunate that, you know, COVID kept the crowds down because, you know, you would have had probably 7,000 people there on Saturday and Sunday on beautiful days on the opening weekend. But uh, hopefully you'll get back to that point eventually. Uh, but right now it's such a different vibe to watch a Gator baseball game. I mean, the park adds a new element to the fan experience over there. So I'm looking forward to getting out there myself. And I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners are on here too. No question. And uh, the Gators welcome in Samford this weekend, 12 straight at Florida Ballpark uh, from Friday on. So a lot of chances, despite the uh, despite the limitations, lots of games for fans to get in and have a chance to experience that new ballpark and, and see this Gators squad as well. Um, I want to move on to our PAT now this week, and I'm inspired by, uh, by reboots uh, because currently I'm watching the uh, – the Save by the Bell reboot, which probably wouldn't resonate with you guys as much as me because you are much older than I am. Uh, but there also now is a Punky Brewster reboot, which I know is an 80s show they're bringing back. Uh, they, I think at the last year they had Murphy Brown came back. That didn't go too well. But right now it's all about reboots. Everything's being rebooted or, or you know, sequelized. I want to know... Thinking back to some of your favorites, what show do you most want to see rebooted in 2021? Probably the height of my TV watching was from the 80s, early 90s. Uh, you know, then they made a movie, but I would still love to see maybe the show be resurrected if they could do it with the same flavor and style. I don't know if they could, but Miami Vice, I'd I'd take a reboot of Miami Vice. I know they've had CSI Miami and all this stuff, mm -hmm. but but it, you, you know you bring Crockett and Tubbs back. Uh, they'd be a little bit older now, but you know they 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 still could uh, they still could rest the bad guys. Whatever happened to Philip Michael Thomas? You know, I, I mean, I'm no, I've seen you see Don Johnson yeah. and things. Yeah, but you know, whatever happened to Philip Michael Thomas? You know, he kind of he really did kind of disappear from the public eye. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, you would think you'd have shown up in Law and Order or something like that. There's a hundred hundred years of Law and Order. You would have shown up in one episode. It's funny. I thought Scott was going to say Cosby Show because <laughs> you know, it just came. Uh, like no, I, I would. And second would be Alf, <laughs> obviously. Alf. You know, it, Miami Vice is one, and Alf is two. I'm from the the different era. That was golden era of freaking television. So the TV that I, I mean, I, I really liked. My wife and I. Really enjoyed watching the ER of the nineties. Mm -hmm. They really put out some uh, some you know stars from that. You know, starting with George Clooney, of course. But if you go back to the eighties, uh, obviously uh, Hill Street Blues was was incredibly popular uh, cop show. And then the people that did that created Saint Elsewhere. And you had a, a, a young doctor named Denzel Washington just getting, you know, his, his foot in the door. And that became like William Daniels was the star of that show. That was some really good TV back then. Um, you know, I don't watch a lot of it now. And I know a lot of it is, is, is Netflix mm. and stuff like that. And I get, I get sucked into some of those um, binge shows. Like, like I know like you do, Adam, and I certainly know Scott does. I, I watch Game of Thrones and – what was it three and a half weeks or something like that, or four weeks uh, during it was, I don't, I don't know what, I guess, I guess I watched Breaking Bad during COVID. I was going to say they could probably reboot Breaking Bad, but they've kind of done that too. Yeah, better they? call Saul. 
yeah. you think about Better Call Saul and you talk about what was the sequel where they sent, followed what's his name up into Canada and El Camino. El Camino. Yeah, I watched it. I remember that. Yep. Yeah. Well, lots of good recommendations from you guys. But uh, if people aren't ready to go explore the the vast network of old television, uh, they can certainly stay plugged into Gator Sports, which you will help them do. Chris is on the basketball beat. Check him out at Gators Chris. Scott is taking care of everything going on with spring football and baseball. He is at Gators Scott, and they can both have all their content be found on FloridaGators.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. When Colin Castleton transferred to Florida last spring, few thought much of a player who averaged a couple of points and rebounds off the bench at Michigan. But they underestimated the big man at their own peril, as he's been one of the breakout players in the SEC this season. We spoke to Colin to learn more about his path to becoming a Gator, which, ironically enough, started out not too far from Gainesville. Well, I was originally like born in South Florida, like in Pembroke Pines, and then I uh, moved with my stepdad and mom to the area I live in now, which is near Daytona Beach. And I lived in DeLand all throughout high school. And then we moved back to Daytona Beach, like by the water uh, when I got to college. So um, my parents live back out there now, my mom, my stepdad. And then I have um, two brothers. Um, both of them are older than me. So I'm the youngest one in the family. And uh, they both just work. The middle one lives in Georgia right now and he works over there. And then my oldest brother he lives in Tallahassee so uh, he works out there too and he has kids but uh, so basically just like a small family not really a huge family just just us and then grandparents uncles or whatever but I don't really have too much of a big family but I'm super close to all of them so where, where did basketball come from was that already a thing that ran in the family or, or were you kind of the the start of that uh no nah, yeah I was basically the start of it um my mom played like high school sports like volleyball um, she was always tall and stuff and athletic, but my biological dad, he actually played professional baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I got a little bit of those like athletic gains from him as well, but we don't look at all the same. He's about like six foot, uh, a little stocky and strong, just like my older brother, my middle brother. He's like shorter, like six foot once for two, but he's stronger, like bit, like built a little stronger and, you know, I'm tall and lean. So. Um, but that's how my mom is. She's super tall and uh, like a little bit on the skinny side. Um, but basketball was something I just started in family. Nobody really played basketball competitively or seriously, but I basically started that trend, I guess. So when did you first pick up a ball? When did you start to get into the game? Uh, well, I mean, I would play when I was younger for fun. Like when I was a kid, like, I mean, I would just shoot around and like play and my mom put me in like, like little rec leagues, but I was never really too good. Like I was just, I would just play for fun. I played all the sports like this, any kid would. Like I played baseball, basketball, football, and I just played all those sports. And I was actually a really good baseball player. Um, I was pretty good at pitching. And then uh, sometime around like sixth, seventh grade, I threw my shoulder out, my right shoulder out. Hmm. Um, and I just couldn't pitch no more. I was kind of just gave up on the sport because um, I always was in love with baseball. And then, um, so I threw my shoulder out. And then I was just kind of like, you know, where do I go from here athletics wise? And then eighth grade year of uh, middle school, I played in this little league for my middle school and I was I was all right. I wasn't really like too good. There was people that were a lot better than me, but I was like, you know, I kind of like the sport. And then freshman year of high school, I was on JV. Uh, I was like six, four at the time on JV. And then that summer, 
going into my sophomore year of high school, I grew like four and a half inches. Wow. And then I just started to love basketball. Like I really fell in love with the game. Um, but I never really took basketball seriously until like going into my sophomore year of high school, probably. So um, however long ago that was, probably about five, six years ago. But mm -hmm. that's when I took it seriously. But I played basketball throughout my, you know, my, my younger life, but I never really was like too great at it or I took it that serious. I definitely took other sports like more serious. When you started to really get into the game, who were some of your biggest influences? Who, I mean, was there a, a particular coach or someone who kind of took you under their wing and, and got you to the, the level you wanted to be at? Uh, I would definitely say like my high school coach, Eddie Miller, my assistant high school coach, uh, Coach Gordon, which is now the girls basketball coach at Father Lopez um, in Daytona Beach. And then my athletic director, who he just got another job at a different school in Orlando, but he was the athletic director at my time. Um, Scott Drapsic, they them three really pushed me and they helped me a lot with academics because I struggled in the beginning of high school, just really like focusing on what I wanted to do in my life, like if I really cared about basketball. Um, and they told me like, you know, you can be really good, but you just got to focus on these certain things because where, where you're headed is not where you like you should be headed. So they kind of just helped me sit down and talk to me. Like that summer I was talking about, I had to like make up a class because I didn't do well my freshman year. And then they just pushed me really hard and, and instilled that like work ethic in me, I guess. And then my mom, obviously, like my parents, my stepdad and my mom were always there. Like they've always been there. They're always like my backbone. So I definitely think those people helped me like get to where I'm at. And I still thank them every day. Like I let them know, like, you know, where I'm at now is mainly because of you guys. And I wouldn't be where I'm at without them for sure. So growing up in Florida, and I feel like a lot of people think of you as as Michigan because that's where you came from. Yeah. But you you were born in Florida, you grew up in Florida. Were you a Gator fan growing up, or you know, did you have a, a particular allegiance at that point? I mean, I wasn't really like a a Gator fan. Like if people ask me like, "Oh, what's your college?" I didn't really have one when I was a kid. Like I wasn't really into wasn't really big into college sports as a kid. Some portion of my family were like FSU fans. And then when I was younger, I really liked like University of Florida football. So I guess you could say I was a Gator fan in, in a sense, but I wasn't like a Gator, like huge fan. Like I would watch them, watch them play. I like like the athletics here, but it wasn't like my dream, like full dream school. But at one point in my life when I was younger, like I really loved Florida. And like I thought, you know, this was before basketball was even a thought. Like I was like, you know, that was probably my dream school. And I really enjoyed it and I liked it. So, um, but when I started against basketball, I kind of like lost like a fan fanatic of the game. I guess I didn't really have a school mm -hmm. I really enjoyed. But when I was younger, I definitely followed Florida because I'm being from Florida. Everybody in my hometown or everybody back home, you know, you see Gator fans everywhere. So it was definitely around and stuff. But uh, I followed some of their sports. I uh, I read that you, uh, as far as Gator basketball players that you did like, though, that Chandler Parsons yeah. was up on that list. What was it uh, about yeah. CP that, that stood out to you? Uh, I just remember watching him, just the, like the way he played with his enthusiasm as well as like just how skilled he was. I really like liked watching like all the different things he could do. And um, I remember watching him a little bit in the NBA before some of his injuries and stuff started, but he, uh, he just was a really good player, like how big he was, how tall he was, and how he could put the ball on the floor, um, stretch the defense out. Um, it definitely intrigued me because I, at the time in high school and stuff, I did a lot of similar things that he would do. And, I, and like, I watched his old highlights and stuff. But when I was younger, I just saw him because he was one of the best players on the team. So, like, if you watch a game, you could see that he was, you know, the best player. Um, but I just liked his overall game. 
fast forwarding to recruiting, um, what was that experience like for you? What schools were, were most interested and what made Michigan the right choice at the time? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the recruiting process was definitely like stressful at the time because it happened so quickly. Going into my senior high school, I probably had like almost 30 offers. Wow. And then like a lot of the smaller schools took a step back and didn't really recruit me as hard. So it came down to like a lot of the bigger times, big time schools, I guess you could say. And then just they came out of Michigan because I just had a really good relationship with Coach Beeline. Uh, my, their assistant coach, Luke, uh, Luke Yaklich, we were super close. Um, he actually recruited me when I was six, going to be 16 years old. I was 15 playing AAU for Showtime Ballers when I was on their 16U team. He recruited me while he was at um, Illinois State as an assistant coach, and he got the job in Michigan. And the first day he got the job, Coach B asked him, like, we need a big man. Like, who can you get? And he was like, I'm not going for nobody else. I want to go to Carlin. And he gave me a call. So that stood out to me that, like, he, like, really cared about me and we had a good relationship. So I, I ultimately ended to go to Michigan. And, you know, I obviously people know I enjoy my time there and definitely learned a lot of things. But I'm happy where I'm at now. I'm looking forward to, you know, finishing off my career really good here at Florida. Hmm. When you think about your time at Michigan, what are some of your best memories? Is there anything that stands out when you look back on it? Honestly, I think just just the relationships I built. Uh, you know, I was close to a lot of people up there. You know, me being away from home, I didn't really have anybody to lean on while I was up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of just somebody just thrown into the ocean, basically, just by yourself to figure it out kind of thing, grow up on your own. And, and I mean, they definitely helped me out with that stuff. A lot of friends were players and stuff like that and coaches. Um, definitely knew I was far from home, so they would help me with those things. But just the things that stood out with me were probably just, you know, a lot of little things, just being able to be with my teammates a lot, you know, our road trips we had and stuff, and then relationships I had with the coaching staff, academic support, um, people that worked at the gym, just a lot of different things like that. I definitely, um, most people take for granted, but I definitely still remember a lot of those things um, while I was up there. When you made the decision to transfer, what were you looking for in your next school? And, and what was that second recruiting process like? Yeah, obviously, like with COVID hitting and stuff, me and my family had a big, long talk about, you know, maybe just being closer to home and having an opportunity to, you know, play in front of my family and friends and kind of just get back to the old calling, uh, which is basically what some people are seeing. Just like, you know, my confidence is at an all time high, just believing in myself and knowing what I'm capable of on and off the court, you know, just the person I am. And I feel like there were times in my past in the college where I wasn't really myself. I was kind of just there in a way. But as far as the recruiting process this time around, just being able to have a coach that I was already close with, I didn't want to have to go through the whole process over again because it was such a short amount of time. And, you know, you couldn't tell who was real and who was fake in that little amount of time. And I've been through the recruiting process, so you could tell. But um, just having a coach that I already knew and, and I kind of, you know, have a little bit of trust with. Uh, I feel like I have that with Coach White and, you know, I already knew him coming out of high school, but obviously I didn't end up here. But, you know, we had a relationship built and the second time around it worked out well. So I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying everything here now. But the second recruiting process definitely went by a lot faster. Um, but me coming home definitely played a part in um, where, what school I was going to choose and stuff like that. You mentioned coming in during COVID and, and the challenges of that, you know, going through that recruiting process when you can't necessarily be with people and, and have that that personal connection. Um, when, when you got to Florida, how challenging was it building those new relationships with your teammates and your coaching staff when there were so many barriers to, to letting you be yeah. physically together? How, how did you do that? 
Yeah, I mean, it was definitely um, different. You know, nobody's used to it. These are different times that nobody was used to, even not just basketball teams, but people that got to go to work every day. Um, normal people just had to go through different things that they weren't used to. But as far as us and the team and me personally coming in, um, I would just say, like, I'm kind of an outgoing guy. So it's really not that hard to, you know, get to know people or, you know, ask questions and, and, and build a relationship with some people. But I think just we were on Zoom calls every day. so. It was challenging for sure, but I think our team did a really good job because Coach White had us on Zoom conferences or Zoom calls every day, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we were on meetings. We did film work um, and we'd have team meetings almost every day, like I said, over the summer. So after I decided to come to Florida, you know, I was on a Zoom call with them every other day and we were getting to know everybody and we would just talk about different things. Like every meeting would be something different. It was almost like when you're in, in elementary school or whatever grade school and you'd have icebreakers, like all mm -hmm. the kids would talk about, like just different things. Like that's kind of like what we did too. Like we would just talk about different things in our meetings um, and everybody would just get a feel for each other. So I feel like that definitely helped, even though it doesn't seem that big, it definitely helped us, you know, like I guess create a little bit of a relationship. And then we saw each other in person and then we just built off from there. Were there any go-to icebreakers like – What's your favorite kind of ice cream or what? Nah, nah, there wasn't, there wasn't nothing like that. It was just like, <laughs> we would just talk about different things like backgrounds. Um, we got like, we would all have a notebook and coach would help us. Like we would write notes down about each other just so we got to know each other um, since we can't be there in person. And that definitely helped me like get to know all the guys, where they're from, backgrounds, stuff like that. From your experience, what's been the biggest difference between the SEC and the Big Ten in terms of on the court, the gameplay, the flow, have there been differences that, that you've noticed? I mean, there's a lot of similarities. You know, at, at this level of basketball, there's going to be a lot of similarities. Um, I would say just the physicalities, you know, it's up there, it's top notch, you know, high major basketball, whatever the level is, it's going to be be physical. So you got to be able to bring it every night. Um, I would say that in the SEC, there are a lot of faster guards. And there's a lot of guards that get up and down. So transition defense is definitely a lot different than the Big Ten. I would say there's a lot of up and down momentum, changing guards and, and changing their pace. They're, they get up and down a lot. And then, um, you know, I would also say that in the Big Ten, it's a little bit more, I guess you could say, like bully basketball. There's a lot more centers in the Big Ten compared to SEC. There's been a lot of guys that aren't like, you know, solidified seven foot, 260 centers. In the, in the Big Ten, there's definitely a lot of those guys, but there are also really good big men in the SEC as well. But I think the biggest difference for me was definitely the change of pace, understanding like, you know, you get a shot up, you got to hurry up and get back down because they're not just bringing the ball up. Black days ago, they're pushing it down your throat. Right. Um, so just being able to adjust that tempo, I think definitely was different. You mentioned earlier you know, that your confidence and, and how big that's been for you. Um, but other than that, what other factors have been key in helping you make this jump? Because obviously your numbers at Michigan did not turn a lot of heads when you chose to transfer. Now your numbers are turning a lot of heads. So what, what else has gone into the success that, that you've had this year? I guess a, a lot of it could, like I said, just be able to just be confident in myself. You know, I've had struggles in the past, just being confident in myself, you know, realizing what I'm capable of on the court um, and, and the things I can do to help a team win. Uh, I think just me coming home and being close to my family definitely helped me, you know, build that confidence of being around friends, being around people that, I, that I'm super comfortable with. Um, and then to that point, you know, being at a new school, a new chapter in my life, I just wanted to, you know, just a new opportunity to just showcase what I can do. And then also Coach White, you know, he's 
he believes in me. Um, he gives me tips every day. Um, he's still hard on me. He still tells me, you know, there's things I got to work on. You know, he's not, you know, just blowing smoke and telling me, you know, oh, you're doing really well. Like most of the time it, it's productive. It's, it's constructive criticism and letting me know like, hey, you're doing well, but you need to keep working on this because this is going to help us win. You know, everything's not just about you at the end of the day. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, the coaching staff here in Florida and my teammates have just helped me, you know, realize that I'm that type of player and I'm capable of, of producing at a high level. Um, but I think overall, just the biggest thing would just be I'm fully believing in myself as a basketball player right now. Um, and I'm confident in, in what I can do and what I can and what I can do on the court. So. So you have the nickname Big C for obvious reasons. You're 6'11". I'm curious, off the court, what are the biggest advantages to being as tall as you are? The biggest advantages? I would biggest say advantages. I would say there's more disadvantages off the court. I was going to ask you that next. I'm starting okay, with okay. the positives we'll go, here. <laughs> we'll go positive. We'll go positive. Uh, the biggest advantages, uh, it's probably just funny, but like if I'm at a store, if I'm anywhere like, anywhere inside of like a city or something and somebody needs help with something i can just grab it for them quickly um <laughs> and they obviously make jokes about it i'm super cool with it like i don't really ever get mad about people making fun of me if i'm <laughs> tall or i kind of just shrug my shoulders and just laugh about it but i would say that would help um uh i don't know i don't know how many advantages there really are in the regular world maybe like a good tour group leader you know yeah, the, the if tour I'm at, with like, if i'm at yeah. like a a spot where obviously it's COVID right now, so I don't, right. I can't do anything right now. But like a normal year, like last year during a normal year, if I was in a group of a lot of people, I can see over everybody. I don't really got to worry <laughs> about like worrying about seeing who's over where. I can I right. can scope an area out like anytime I go somewhere, I can scope the whole place out because I'm the tallest person. Um, but especially during COVID, there's not really many advantages. No, can't really true. do much. So, it's, but it's a good point. I'd say those are probably the biggest advantages daily. Okay, so let's flip it because it seems like you got those ready to go in terms yeah. of the, uh, the the downsides. <laughs> Definitely. Disadvantages, man, there's a lot, but I, mean, I got to be grateful for my height. I can't really be mad about it. I don't ever, you know, people ask me all the time, like, yo, do you get annoyed with people like joking about your height or, you know, asking you questions? Because people will always ask me like, yo, like if you go, if you go anywhere, like how many times do you get asked your height during the day? And I tell them, <laughs> well, it, it depends how, where I go. If I stay right. in my house all day. I'm not getting bothered the whole day, but if I go out to a restaurant, if I go out to eat or if I'm with my friends, like it's, it's nonstop Every, everywhere I go. Most people ask me and, you know, I, I don't really care about that. It's not a problem, but daily disadvantages would be, you know, like the shower, not being big <laughs> enough for a shower. Those are, that's pretty rough because I love my showers. Um, <laughs> I would say fitting in cars, some okay. cars you just can't really fit into. And my car is not a big car, but I just moved to see all the way back and I'm comfortable uh, beds, sleeping in beds, you always got to have a bigger bed. And then the biggest thing, the most mm. annoying thing is clothes, trying to find clothes that fit you. I <laughs> like my friends are all shorter. Like I don't have any best friends. They're like high level athletes as well, but like mm -hmm. they're just regular guys and they are all normal heights and they can go to the mall and go get clothes and like, bro, you trying to come with, I'm like, I can't go. Like, right. If I go there, I'm not going to really find many clothes that fit me or Cause you know, I'm longer and tall and a little bit slimmer. So like I can try to get the bigger sizes, but then they're going to be too big on me. So right. trying to find clothes that fit you are def is definitely a struggle, but I'm always online trying to find stuff and it takes time for sure. Yeah. How do you do it? Like where, where do you go for your, for your non, your non team issued gear? Well, I mean, like sometimes I can go to stores and I can find stuff that fits like hoodies and some sweatpants will fit me. And you know, most stuff like underwear socks, those aren't a problem, but like, 
the jeans or like certain shirts or you know some pants like joggers and stuff those are definitely hard to find long sleeve long sleeve shirts which i like wearing a lot those are definitely harder to find but i just i just do a lot of research on my on my phone and computer and try to find different websites and apps that sell like clothes that, that are for taller people as well in terms of big guys i think there's you know, there's obvious names you think about but for you who are the ones who you most look up to and model your game after whether it's people playing now or maybe those uh from the the, the past well, there's a lot of guys I look up to and love watching their game, but I wouldn't say I can really model my game after them because I think if I did some things that they did, I'd get subbed out of the game pretty quickly. But <laughs> I mean, there's certain there's a lot of players that I like watching and I like working on things that they work on. Um, but I would just say I really love watching um, Tim Duncan. I've watched mm-hmm. a lot of his a lot of his film um, over the summer. Me and Coach Pink would go back and forth with that stuff, and we do he would work me out and do workout stick. Tim Duncan would do because he remembers, forgot the story, but somehow somebody he knew when he was coaching at a previous school was really close with Tim Duncan. And he would watch the workouts that Tim Duncan did. And we did like certain drills that Tim Duncan would do. Um, but I love the way his feel for the game was, his passing ability. Uh, he can stretch it out a little bit to like 18 feet. You know, Tim Duncan was one of the all-time greats and going to be one of the best power forwards of all time. So I definitely love watching his game. Um, in high school, I really loved watching Dirk. That was like, mm-hmm. he's my all-time favorite player of all time. But I wouldn't say I really try to like fully mimic my game off of him. Um, but I like Tim Duncan a lot. Uh, I love Kevin Garnett's uh, passion for the game. I try to watch a lot of his stuff right before a game. So um, before a game, every game I watch like the Kevin Garnett video, the same one. Um, and I'll just watch that YouTube video on like a loop and try to just get my mindset right because he was super engaged in basketball games. He was a monster in every aspect of, of a game, but definitely love Kevin Garnett and watching him play. So those two were probably the biggest, Kevin Garnett and uh, Tim Duncan. A um, couple final things for you. Um, obviously, it's it's been a weird year, and you guys have had now multiple – you know, two to three week pauses in your season. Yeah. And I know when, you know, when there have been bad results that follow that and you were the first one to say it's not an excuse, but I'm just curious, what's been the the tangible impact of that? How difficult is it when things get stopped to then restart it again? I mean, I think it's definitely difficult. You know, all teams are dealing with it though. It's not just us at Florida, but I think it's definitely difficult because when you start to get on a little bit of a groove or a run people say or you know good practice after good practice and you play a good game and then more practices are well and you're getting you know kind of like into a flow of, of things like it's feeling like a normal season I guess mm-hmm. and then you get stopped like there's nothing you can really do about it um everybody has to just completely pause what you're doing and, and it I guess it kind of might just kill the vibe a little bit um but everybody knows this is how this year's been going uh we don't know when it's going to change we don't know if it will change so you can't really get negative about it. You kind of got to just be positive about it and, and realize, you know, like what can we do during this break so that when we get out of the break, we're still close to what we were at, if not the same. And obviously I think after this past break, we came out a little lackadaisical versus Arkansas. Um, I didn't play obviously my best game, um, but um, we bounced back and played pretty well. So we just got to continue that momentum. So I think just moving on and being able to just realizing this is how it's going to be. This is the year we're dealing with. This is the stuff we're dealing with. Um, and just being able to move on and, and have a positive mindset. It's a really big, big mindset thing. 
final question in terms of your mindset. I know you, you just talked a lot about kind of the team at the, the yeah. macro level, uh, but for you, trying to finish this season strong, what are some of the, the key focuses for you, especially, you know, on the practice court and, and getting ready? Um, well, Coach White has really been on me lately about just emotion, just being able to control my emotion in a positive and negative way. Uh, obviously, people know that I bring the team a lot of emotion in a positive way at times, but that can also backfire if things aren't going well as a team or for me personally. Sometimes I might, you know, hang my head a little bit and then everybody sees that because people will feed off your energy. When you bring a lot of positive energy, a majority of the time, um, people feed off that. But if you're doing that positively, sometimes if you bring negative energy, then it brings the team down as well. So uh, being able to balance that and then, you know, relate that to being a leader, just, you know, people are always going to look at, at what I'm doing. So if, if I'm positive all the time, no matter what's going on, then it'll help the team win at the end of the day. And just, I think just for me, for the rest of the season, you know, just adjust to teams, you know, double teaming and, and being able to keep passing the ball well. Uh, the beginning of the year, I didn't really have an issue with people double teaming me or worrying about, you know, we have a threat in the post that we got to guard. So mm -hmm. I'm continuing to adjust to that, you know, realizing as soon as I take that first dribble, I got two or three guys coming right at me. Um, and, you know, I've talked to a coach about that and I'm an unselfish player, so I'm not really too worried about the way I can pass the ball. I feel like I can pass the ball really well. Um, but just focusing on that and then also just um, back to what I was saying, just the leading part. I think if if this team wants to go where we, where we want to go, uh, we got to have guys continue to step up. And I feel like I'm one of those guys who can help, you know, lead the team. And I feel like guys can trust me and lean on me to to help them with whatever they need. But just continue to do those things and, and working hard every day, focusing on uh, getting better every day and not worrying about nothing else. Well, Con, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, and, and thank you for your time as well. Good luck the rest of the season. Appreciate it. No problem. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at floridagators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.